you know, what I want to know is is how how does one get involved in doing rock work as a woman? Do you really, really want to know? Or do you just want the rehearsed response that I always give? What would happen if we chose to really tell the truth about ourselves? Like if we really, really just told the real truth of our lives. I'm not saying that it's true. I'm saying that it's my truth. You're listening to Hammered. Periodically, I would go back into my journal and read the things that I had written. I heard a lady one day talk about how your journal can kind of be a barometer of your progress. And I'd gone back and read about during that first two to three weeks, I had gone to that biker lady meeting where she told me about the glass of puke. And those women had actually placed bets that I would drink again because I had been invited up to a college friend's cabin in Little Switzerland, North Carolina. My friend Amy, they called her Amos Moses from Brevard College, was having a get-together. And her and her girlfriend and these a bunch of gay girls which at that point, nobody was still out of the closet. It was just an unspoken. Well, she had invited me to this ski trip before I had gotten sober. And so I was going to go hell or high water. And I told this group of women on the Tuesday night small women's group in Lawrenceville, Georgia, about the ski trip. And they all shook their head and they said, well, you hang around the barbershop long enough, you will get a haircut. All their little cliches would just piss me off even more. And I was determined that I would go to this ski trip. And they put bets on it that that I would drink. Well, that was enough to give me enough fuel To not drink. Yeah, right. Well, I went to the ski trip, and I had never been around my friend Amy without drinking alcohol. So there we were, and I remember getting to this cabin. I thought that I had seen a lot of alcohol in my life. Well, they were bringing in cases of beer with a hand truck. This was going to be a fucking throwdown. To top it off, we got snowed in. And I was there. I had my journal and I had my big book in my bedroom. That was my arsenal. Well, one night 
they had started running low on beer. We had been there several days. I was in complete turmoil. And they decided they'd take this jeep down to Asheville to Buncombe County because you could cross the line and find a liquor store. That They wanted to get liquor. So I planned it out. I'll wear my trench coat. I'll ride down there with them. I'll go into the liquor store and I'll steal a couple of bottles of tequila and put them under my arms, under my trench coat and walk out and nobody will ever know. I had done this technique before, so I knew how to do it. My friend had no idea what I was going through. None of these girls knew what I was going through. They were sort of like, oh, you're not drinking, poor you. But, you know, they were respecting it enough to not force a drink on me. But I felt like I'd set myself up because now they all knew the big secret. So I had to be careful with this plan. I knew that all of them would have enough alcohol in their system that they wouldn't be able to smell me or really notice me. So I had my plan. We got in the Jeep. It was already nighttime. And the girl that was driving starts going down the hill. Well, the roads were so iced that we had to turn around and come back. We barely made it back up that mountain, but we got back. They all went in the house, and I stayed outside. And I said, oh, I'm just going to smoke a cigarette. Well, I started pacing back and forth up and down the driveway with my trench coat and my obesity pacing back and forth, back and forth. And I started saying, don't pick it up and don't put it in your mouth. Don't pick it up and don't put it in your mouth. Don't pick it up and don't put it in your mouth. God, please don't let me pick it up and don't let me put it in my mouth. I knew I was going to go into that cabin and I was going to start sneaking those beers when they weren't looking and I was going to drink those beers. I was in so much pain. I went back in that cabin. I went back into that bedroom and I got that journal out and I started writing in this journal. I'm dying. I'm dying. Don't pick it up and don't put it in your mouth. Don't pick it up and don't put it in your mouth. It was like a mantra. I made it through that night. The next morning when I woke up, the sun was out and the roads had begun to melt. I had never in my life like left something early or even had the balls to say, I'm uncomfortable and I'm going to go home. I don't think I said I'm uncomfortable. I I think I said, I just have to go home. When I drove down that mountain from little Switzerland, North Carolina, with that sun shining through that nasty-ass, snow-salted windshield of the Toyota Corolla. It was like the angels in the sky were up there announcing, blowing their fucking trumpets, playing their fucking harps. They were doing something because the elation that came through me for a split second 
for just a minuscule second, there was a jolt, a burst of something that I guess I could label as joy, got me down and the tears started coming down my face and I knew that I had achieved something. All I knew was that I did not pick it up and I did not put it in my mouth and I did not drink it. When I returned to that meeting, those ladies were in shock and I got my 30-day medallion and it was a big fucking deal. Another thing that I would read in my journal was about being at the chicken farm. I would kind of go back and read that again and think about how when I saved that chicken from his demise, I named that chicken Jimmy. And, you know, I think the chicken was a girl because I don't think boy chickens lay eggs, but I named him Jenny, Jimmy or her. And I made a little bed. I made a little spot with a little pillow and some old towels. And I made this poor little chicken because it was kind of crippled. But I made it a little bed in a corner and gave it a little dish of food and water. And I would check on it. And it started to recover. And I cared for that little chicken. And it kind of broke my heart. All those chickens broke my heart. Something was happening to me. Something was stirring a little bit of compassion inside of myself. All these little kitty cats following me around. And then all the dead chickens I would find. It was like... It was like seeing aspects of myself because I was so self-absorbed. I was so narcissistic and all I could think about was my own problems and my own heartbreak. I could not get out of that, but the only thing that sort of gave me any kind of relief was to help those little animals and I would kind of help them along and talk to them. And I was forming this sort of relationship with this whole little world of crazy chickens. Sometimes possums would get in and get these chickens out and stretch their necks. And they call it wringing their necks, but they would kill them. And that would just be the saddest thing. And so I had a lot of like, rehashing even in this journal I would kind of look at the the pages I had written and there was another page that I had written about my windshield wiper in my car my windshield wiper right in front of the driver's side had not worked for like a year and a half and every time it would rain I would find myself reaching out of the the window and trying to get the windshield wiper in my hand and move it manually so that I could just see enough to get myself to where I was going. And I wrote about it in the journal like it was this big old trauma. And I remember seeing tear stains on the page because I was crying because I couldn't figure out what am I to do about my windshield wiper. And one day this lady in the meeting said, why don't you just take it to the gas station. Well, see, I couldn't do something like that because to me, 
it was going to be real bad. Like it would be like five or six hundred dollars, I'm sure, to fix it. Because there's a thing I kept hearing about in these meeting meetings, and they called it the magnificent magnifying mind. The magnificent magnifying mind. What does that mean? And they would talk about how, as an alcoholic, you take a little tiny grain of sand and, of course, you turn it into this entire beach of sand. You make something so much bigger and so much worse than it is. Well, I knew that my windshield wiper was crippling. I knew that I could not afford to get that fixed because to me anytime you took a car to a shop they were going to rip you off it was going to be horrible well this one day I finally got up the nerve and I pulled into the Exxon gas station and I asked the guy I just said my windshield wiper it doesn't work on this one side and I'm just, I'm having a hard time. I don't know what to do. Can you just look at it and tell me what you think it is? He didn't even say anything. He went over, he pulled the whole thing off, the whole arm of the windshield wiper. He pulled them both off and he switched them. He goes, now try it. I turned the car on and oh my God, my windshield wiper in front of my face worked. Well, now the other one didn't. And he said, that'll get you by till you can afford to get it fixed. And he didn't charge me. Well, that was sort of a beginning to me. That was sort of a beginning of some sort of faith. I don't even know how you describe faith. To me, faith meant getting down on your knees in the Baptist church and crying your face off on in your hands while all the women come around in their frumpy fucking conservative dresses and t tell you and pat you on the back, oh, it's going to be okay. The Lord loves you. Jesus will wash all your sins away and all that. And see, to me, none of that made any sense because that didn't make me feel better. That made me feel worse. But I had this, this small, small feeling that, wow, something, something like went my way. It wasn't even my way. It wasn't my way. <clears throat> it was just something happened better. It wasn't worse. It was a little bit better. And so I would go to this job at Kodak. I had moved with, with Vince, the Italian man, and there we were in this, this routine. So I'm going to these meetings at the 11 o'clock group at Rebos, this AA club. And the group was called the Swingers. Well, I kept thinking, what the hell is that? Like, is that a 70s term, the swingers? But what it was, was the meeting had started years and years ago from the swing shift group at Lockheed, which was the aircraft company that was based out of the Marietta Air Force Base, Dobbins Air Force Base. So 
all these employees that had been alcoholic had started this swingers meeting. But I would go to that 11 o'clock meeting because I was working the night shift and I would sit quietly and most of the people were elderly. And I would just listen and listen and then I would go to my job and do my processing and I was actually a slide processor so I would process slides and then I would have to check them for color and that was a very boring mundane job but it didn't matter I didn't really care what the fucking job was I was just I knew that I just needed to work and it was it was really good too because it was sort of mindless because my mind could not hold a thought there was too much chaos and too much racing going on well, one night before I had to go to my shift at work, I was in the apartment and my phone rang and I had a telephone in my room and I said, hello. And I hear this man's voice that says, Jill. And I sat for a second and I went, Bill. And then my heart felt like it stopped. This fear came over me. Oh, my God. It was Bill. It was ice cream Bill. And I sat there holding my breath. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm, um, I'm just getting ready to go to work. I work at night. He goes, well, where are you working? And I kind of told him. And he goes, well, what else have you been up to? Oh, my God. And I thought, oh, God, I got to tell him. I got to tell him. If I don't tell him, I will probably meet up with him. I've got to tell him. And I said, well, sort of like, uh, sort of like AA. And he goes, oh, my God, sort of like in a said bill he goes yeah in a narcotics anonymous and i said you're going to na and he goes yeah i've been going for several months that to me sent chills through my body now i understand chills to kind of be something like a spiritual thing because every time that something sort of good or sort of positive would sort of happen I would get these chills that would shoot through my body and I felt chills all over and I started to cry and I could hear him on the other end and he was crying as he was laughing and we talked for a few more minutes, and I remember saying, I love you, Bill. He goes, I love you too, Jill. And that was the last time I ever talked to him in my life. And I truly, truly, truly loved Bill. I think Bill was probably bisexual. And Bill and I had had some very, very, very intimate talks and dealings. We had been all over Atlanta. We had been in gay bars and we had been in some major situations. 
I loved him. I loved him deeply. And I'll never forget that phone call. And that little bit of hope. That little bit of hope that it just made it okay that I finally told somebody the truth. And he didn't laugh at me. And he didn't judge me. And he was trying. He was trying just like I was. We had gotten ourselves in a world of hurt. We had put ourselves in a place that now we were both willing to take a look at it. Kodak was a very depressing job for me. I kept thinking about how I had worked there when I was in college and how much I had changed. And now it wasn't a college gig. It was the real deal. I was like an adult. I was coming to work and all these older women and they'd been there for years and years. And they always brought their little bags of lunch and they called lunch at three o'clock in the morning, lunch. And I used to think, why are they calling it lunch? It's not lunch. It's in the middle of the night. Well, it would make me very upset. And I remember I would get a pack of cheese, peanut butter crackers out of the machine and like a tab or a Diet Coke or something like that and sit in this break room. And I remember this one night I just went in there and I didn't even turn the lights on. I just sat in the dark. And there was an outside hallway light sort of shining in. Well, this lady I'd noticed, she was kind of old, older, and she had had a stroke. And her head was sort of stuck sideways, almost like her cheek was about to be glued to her shoulder. And she had kind of dyed red hair, kind of a lot of wrinkles, and she walked really weird and slow. And her name was Lois, and her mouth was kind of drawn to the side just a little bit. But she came into that break room, and she said, do you mind if I join you? And I said, I don't care. And she turned on one fluorescent light, and she pulled a chair right in front of me and sat down. And she takes out her lunch at 3 o'clock in the morning, and she had a little Tupperware thing of some salad, and she had kind of a healthy-looking example in front of her, and I'm eating these crackers. And she small-talked for a few minutes, and she asked me if I'd like to join her in walking at night. And I said, where are you going to walk? And she said, well, I'll walk laps around the whole building. Kodak was huge. It was kind of like a compound. It took up part of Peachtree Industrial, and it had a lot of space. And there was a whole walking lap that was inside. And she said, I just try to do it ever since I had this stroke, and I've quit smoking. And so I said, maybe, I don't know. And she said, well, I know your daddy, and I know that your daddy would be real proud of you. And she said, you know, I don't know you that well, Jill, but I know that you seem to be going through something kind of tough. And about that time, she pulls out her purse, 
reaches in her purse and she pulls out a checkbook. And she said, I know you've been having some trouble with your car. And at that point, my car was broken down and I needed an alternator and I couldn't afford to buy one. So a friend of mine had been bringing me back and forth to work. She takes her checkbook out and she says, I'm going to give you something, but I want you to know that I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for me. And I kept sitting there thinking, what are you doing? And she wrote out a check made out to Jill Haney for $500 and she pushed it across the table. And I said, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 no. I can't take this from you. And she said, you're not rejecting me, Jill. You're rejecting God. And I said, yeah, but God's not writing that check. You are. She said, no, no, no. Something in me wants me to do this. That's all I know. And I said, I can't, I won't be able to pay you back. And I started crying. And she said, you don't have to pay me back. She said, all I ask is that one day you do the same for someone else. That's how this whole thing works. Well, I'd been hearing in these meetings over and over and over about, well, you just got to turn it over. If you got a problem, you got to turn it over. And I'm thinking, turn what over? What the fuck are you talking about? Turn it over. Turn it over to God. Just turn it over. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to God as we understood God. That was the third step. And I, I, and I couldn't understand turn it over. Let go and let God. Like I could hear those words, but I could not have a tangible experience with that. Well, when she gave me that check and she refused to take it back, something lit up in me. There was a curiosity that came to life in me, and I thought, wonder if, wonder if there is a God who's not mean. Wonder if there is a God that's not going to kill me and put me in prison. Like, wonder if that was true. And it started this whole idea of possibility. I went back to my meetings and I shared this experience. And of course, you know, people will tell you all the good things that, that you know, kind of that you want to hear. And I still wasn't convinced, though, that I was going to make it. I was very, very afraid and I still really, really wanted to drink I didn't think that that was ever going to go away. And I remember this guy in the back of the room, and they called him Jocko, and he was from Chicago, and he'd been a beatnik. He drove a taxi and had this really big stomach, and his button was always unbuttoned right near his belly button. His shirts were way too tight. But he had a goatee and kind of long, greasy, slick back hair, kind of like a Wolfman Jack. And he kind of he kind of talked like Wolfman Jack. He was kind of cool. 
but he had these blue eyes and they twinkled. They literally twinkled. And I remember this one night at the meeting, he was sitting back there and he goes, baby, it's a time machine and you just got to ride it. You got to ride the time machine. Time takes time. And it would be these little tiny things that I would hear. And it was like an alarm clock would go off in my brain. And it would stick. And I would hear it in the daytime. Or I would hear it at some crucial moment. Baby, time takes time. It's a time machine and you got to ride it. And that would hold me one more minute. That would save me one more minute. Well, I was getting very, very sick and tired of going to these meetings, listening to this stuff. I was starting to get that antsy, antsy feeling, especially on Fridays and Friday nights. Oh, that was so hard. And this one Friday night, there was this group of kind of younger people Well, there had been this woman that was sitting in the meetings and she was kind of this tiny little shriveled up kind of woman, short black hair with thick, thick, thick Coke bottle glasses. And she had all these burn scars on her arms and her face. She'd been burned somehow, but she was a very peaceful woman. And she had said hello to me several times. Her name was Pat. Well, this one Friday evening, the meeting was getting ready to start, and she came in, and she had this girl with her, and this girl had to be 6'1". She was this tall, skinny, beautiful, attractive girl, and she had on this pink dress, and I'm like, why is she wearing a pink dress here? Why is she even wearing pink? Why? Why? And she looked like a cross of, like, Diane Keaton and Shelley Duvall, who played Olive Oil in the movie Popeye. Gangly, tall, wafy, zany-looking, pretty, but mad as hell. So Pat, the burn lady, brings this girl up to me and says, Jill, this is Susan, and she's brand new, and I thought maybe y'all could meet. Well, of course, I'm like miserable in my skin, and I just kind of shyly go, hey. She goes, hey. And I'm thinking, that girl that want to talk to me, she's probably grossed out just looking at me. Because, see, all I see when I see me is grossness and sickness and patheticness and just horrible, horrible ugliness. So I'm thinking that, of course, she's seeing the same thing that I see. Why would she want to talk to me or anything like that? Well... We sat through this meeting, and it was blah, 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 and she kind of sat across from me, and I got a glimpse at her a couple of times. Well, I had been giving up smoking. I hadn't smoked for several weeks, and I noticed that she smoked the same kind of cigarettes, Marlboro Lights, and she kept smoking one cigarette after the other. Well, after the meeting, I saw her just take off. 
and I wasn't going to dare say anything because I didn't talk to anybody unless they talked to me. Well, this group of young people, and they were kind of scraggly, and this one guy, I remember they were going, hey, you want to go with us? We're going to go across town to Naba. They have a 10 o'clock meeting. And so it was a 10 o'clock at night meeting, and I was like, well, you know, I don't have anything else to do. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll go over there. So I followed them, and I went to NABA, which was the very, very, very first AA club that I had gone to with Terry. And we're sitting there, and once again, you know, when you get into these meetings, it was sort of like interesting because everything was always different. You're never going to hear the same story twice. Now, you will hear the slogans and you'll hear sayings over and over and over repetitiously, but you're not going to hear the same stories. And so I was pretty intrigued by just listening to people and hearing some of these escapades that they had gone through. So the meeting was getting almost toward the end, and I hear a chair behind me scuffling around, making some noise, and I turn around, and it's the six-foot girl with the pink dress, Susan, and she's miserable, and she can't get the chair, the leg of the chair stuck in somebody else's chair, and she makes a big sound, and she sits down, and she's got a McDonald's bag, and she starts unfolding like a McDonald's burger of some type, like a Big Mac or something, and fries. And she's sitting there eating, and they're talking in the meeting. And I'm like turned around thinking, God, shut the fuck up. Like, you're really being disruptive here. So finally, they end the meeting, and she looks up, and she starts crying and saying, you know, and I ordered an apple pie, and they can't even goddamn put the fucking apple pie in the bag. And I looked at her, and famous words came through my mind. And I said to her, out of nowhere, you know, nobody's holding a gun to your head making you come here. She froze, just sat there and stared at me. And then I said, if you want to go have coffee and talk, we can. Hammered is recorded and produced in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. It's narrated by Jill Haney, produced by Maggie Briggs and Jill Haney, and with sound design, editing, and music by Alexander Rodriguez. Our beautiful artwork was created by Lauren Caddick, and we'd like to send a special thanks out there to Minnie and Robin. You can check out our website, podcasthammer.com, and follow us on social media for updates. 